Our next three scripture passages come from Judges 21, verse 25, 1 Samuel 8, 4 through 5, and John 19, 17 through 20. They are found in pages 221, 230, and 905. Oh, Holy Father, you are holy and you are good, and your mercy endures forever. Oh, God, we just ask you by your Holy Spirit, open our understanding, open our hearts to receive your word. Open, oh God, our ears to hear what you will have us to hear, oh God, and help us to receive from your word and by your spirit what you want us to know, oh Lord, through your word and through Manfred, who's preaching tonight, oh God. Lord, we praise you and thank you that you will plant the seed and root it in us, and we pray, oh God, that it will bear fruit to your glory. Glory unto the Father, in Jesus' name, amen. Judges 21 25. In those days, there was no king in Israel, Everyone did what was right in his own sight. Verse Samuel, verse 8. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and so, and said to him, Behold, you are old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. And the final passage, John chapter 19. And he went out, bearing his own cross, to the place called the place of a skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him, and with him two others, one on either side, and Jesus between them. Pilate also wrote an inscription and put it on the cross, it read, Jesus of Nazareth, the King of the Jews. Many of the Jews read this inscription, for the place there where Jesus was crucified was near the city, and it was written in Aramaic, in Latin, and in Greek. The word of the Lord.
gather tonight, we remember the ultimate sacrifice of our beautiful King, our Lord Jesus Christ. The Lamb whose Lord, clothed in humility and grace, willingly offered himself to death so that we might have everlasting life. This is where the way, the truth, and the life, and as we reflect on your passion, may our love be rekindled so that we might live purposely, sacrificially, and holy for you. Spirit, I ask that you will speak to us as we consider the Christ, Christ's way for us, and the perfect and faithful love by which you love us on the cross. Amen. In the last uh, five uh, chapters of the book of Judges, there is a phrase that the writer repeats several times and I think brings light to explain uh, the spiritual and moral corruption. Uh, and the deterioration God's people have fallen into since they came to possess the promised land. On several occasions, the phrase, in those days there was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes, is used to describe the condition men's hearts had with no desire to be held accountable for anything to anyone but to themselves. On the one hand, this declaration aims to, aims to reference the present state of Israel at that very moment in history, still it echoes the past as well as it points back to what got humanity to experience corruption, decay, death in the first place when they decided to live self-governed lives in an emotional regard in the garden of Eden. But everything that encompasses from that point on the biblical narrative. This section of the biblical narrative is where we find one of the darkest and most troubling chapters and moments in the scripture that again points out to the description that define the state, the condition, the corruption of the human heart. And I'm referring to Judges 19. Judges 19 describes the state of humanity very well when he says that there was no king in Israel. One can't read such a chapter without feeling hopeless, <laughs> troubled, and having that sense of how twisted and messed up the world and the heart of man was at that point. In this chapter, there is everything but good news. It is not a chapter probably for you, your morning coffee, or your devotional. Or maybe it is. Instead, what we find here is a description of the chaos, the void, the darkness, the despair, and the emptiness just like the world state in Genesis 1 that compelled God, the move God to create, calling life and light into existence when the world has no form. There was no king in Israel, and everyone did what was right in their own eyes. And there is no trace, nor evidence of good news here, rather the chaos and despair. So we know that there was no king in Israel. However, as the biblical narrative progressively continues, we learn in the first book of Samuel that the leaders of the nation are demanding a king now. Samuel warns them that these kings will come to take and consume and control their lives and their possessions. The kings will be characterized by their self-reliance, pride, and desire to serve themselves with an inclination to do the evil before the Lord. They will come to be served, but not to serve. With a few exceptions, of course, these kings will cause pain and anguish, but not joy and satisfaction. 
These kings will bring everything but the expectation of life and the nation's flourishing. And instead, they will bring conflict, battles to fight, wars, death, destruction, and will also cause the nation to become a divided kingdom and eventually experience slavery and exile under the rule of those nations they so badly wanted to become like. In the book of Samuel, people ask for an early king with a heart just like theirs. But however, uh, their demands for a king are well justified as they wanted a ruler like all the other nations, as they tried to be like the other nations. Nations who eventually will consume them and enslave them. But Israel saw access to the power other nations had when unity was conformed around and under the rule of one king. They wanted a king that might judge them and lead them, a king that will fight the, will fight the battles, and God is going to grant them their desires. The irony of this request is that they already had a king, a king who was constantly fighting for them, providing, caring for them, guiding them, loving them, a king that from the very beginning called and chose Israel to be a separate nation, a different nation that will carry his name as a testimony to the rest of the world. A nation that will be a blessing, a testimony to the other nations to what it meant to live under the sovereign rule of the one true and living king. And with this request, what they're doing is that they're rejecting God. We know from the narrative that Saul then became the first of a long line of kings in Israel despite Samuel's warnings. These kings who fell short to love and shepherd the nation, kings who were unable to obey and fulfill God's commandments. And instead, what they did is that they draw the nation away from the Lord. And still, there is no good news here. But the Lord that continued in absolute control was moved by mercy and compassion for his namesake. He then called David to succeed Saul as a king, foreshadowing the coming of the one, the true, living king that was to come, a king appointed by God himself before the creation of the world. This king was promised to come and reunite the nations and the world under his perfect and sovereign rule. But even with the granted demands for a king, people kept doing what was right in their own eyes. They alienated themselves from the Lord and started to live a separate life, a divorced life from God. And we know that Saul failed to be that king. And instead it was through David's bloodline that God's kingdom was to be established here on earth pointing to the Messiah, the son of David, the one who will come in the name of the Lord, bringing an everlasting kingdom of peace, justice, and, restoring, and to restore humanity into relationship and harmony with God. This king will come loving, serving, caring, and bringing the good news, destroying sin by crushing the head of the snake forever and abolishing the dead in its dominion over humanity. There was no king in Israel, the people asked for a king, but God gave him a king, not the king. And finally, the king came. But humanity and the world were not that different when Christ came into the world. Everyone kept on doing what was right in their own eyes. And all this reflects the condition of the human heart, the void, the emptiness, the deformity sin caused to God's image bearers. And it also shows the longing and the need for restoration that the world was craving and demanding. Just as the world was 
calling to be recreated due to the chaos, the formlessness, and the darkness, the nation and the earth were screaming to be restored. Again, they were begging for a king to come and restore the kingdom. And Jesus Christ was the rightful king to the throne. He came to the world, and the word became flesh and dwelt among his people. John says in his gospel that Jesus, the light of the world, the one who was the true light, came to shine on the world with his love, mercy, and compassion. He came to create and breathe new life, to rescue what was lost and captive, and also to restore and heal what was broken. The king came but was not known. He wasn't acknowledged by many, even when he was the clear king in his birth. Anointed as a king and empowered by the spirit for his royal mission here on earth in his baptism. However, he was recognized as a king by his disciples, some of his detractors and enemies. And he was received and proclaimed as the king by known and strangers. Just a few days, he willingly and freely walked to his public coronation and execution. As an innocent man... In his royal commission and day to his people, the king received a crown of thorns, was dressed in purple robes, was struck instead of being hugged and welcomed, and was presented for crucifixion with the cross as his scepter. In the hands of the people and the soldiers, he was the victim of mockery, rejection, and experienced the trauma of physical and emotional abuse, forsaken and left alone hanging on that cross. He was mocked by soldiers and religious leaders and acclaimed with an inscription in the common language of his times that read, Jesus of Nazareth, King of the Jews, something that was publicly acknowledged by a criminal beside him and a soldier below his bleeding feet. Nailing that cross as the symbol of exaltation and as the king that he was with his body deformed, covered by blood, our king not only displayed the love by which God so loved the world, but, he, but how he became the necessary offering and sacrifice as the propitiation for humanity's transgressions. Pierced on that cross with his broken body serves as a picture of the destruction sin caused on the image of God given to humanity, given to us. On that cross, Christ became an expression, a symbol of the cruelty of a ruthless and kingless world a picture of what humanity becomes when they decide to do what's right in their own eyes. When humans try to control and bring order to the chaos, they create even more chaos. <laughs> but for God, chaos and destruction become the raw material to develop and create life into existence. But for the kingless humanity, it just produces destruction, annihilation, just a reflection of what's in their hearts. God creates from nothing. <laughs> and we humans can only create or produce from what already exists. The cross confronts each one of us today with the curse of sin. That having a king, we still struggle with the tension of wanting to surrender ourselves to his ruling, personhood and love, or alienate ourselves in the solitude and deformity of our undoing. Our sin. Looking at the cross, we're provided with an external image, a sneak peek, if you were, into humanity's heart when the one ruling our lives is not King Jesus. 
the cross was offensive and scandalous then as it is today. And yet the only way for this world to access the path of redemption and restoration. Here death, darkness, and deformity becomes the necessary means for the Lord to create. That's how life and light started in the first place with chaos. In his crucifixion, Jesus displays the goodness of God, his presence passing in front of the world, recreating with mercy and compassion, just as he did in the beginning, just as he did in Genesis. Riding that cross, he was making all things new. And this is good news for us today, believers and non-believers alike. What a tradition called a Good Friday was made good due to the king's broken, assaulted, bleeding, traumatized, and deformed body. He felt the weight of our sin and pain and agony caused by his executioners. He felt every bit of it in his body. However, that day was everything but good news for a first century Jew who had followed Jesus and believed that Jesus was the Messiah and the King and the Son of God. Think about it for the disciples and followers that saw Jesus agonizing on the cross was the end. They didn't share the privilege that you and I share today, knowing that the cross and dead were not the end. And rather, it was just the beginning. That obscure day represents for a moment the end of their hopes of being rescued from the cruelty of their oppressors. Oppressors Seeing their master on that cross was not only hard to watch, but also hard to believe. On that day, darkness covered the earth, and during his last moments in agony on the rugged cross, abandoned and forsaken by his father, Jesus experienced this separation, the absence of communion with the father. And the king, the man, the son, the priest, and the sacrifice, knowing that all now was finished, said, I thirst. And when he had received the sword wine, he declared, all, absolutely everything is finished. Everything in the past, in the present, and the future, it was done. I have done it, he said. At that very moment, the curtain of the temple was turned to, and Jesus, breathing his last breath, momentarily leaves this earth, just as a king leaves his kingdom to go into battle, a war campaign to conquer and eradicate his people's enemies. He bowed his head, gave up his spirit, and went on to persecute, to face, and destroy death forever. Dead, humanity's greatest enemy and adversary, and he went to end it. He did that for you and for me. The king is death. <laughs>